Welcome to the Purse Podcast. My name is Jana Hlistova, and we are changing the conversation for women about money and investing. I'm super excited about my guest today, Barbara Clark. Barbara is the co-founder of the Impact Seat and the chair of the board of the Impact Seat Foundation. Launched in 2021, the Impact Seat Foundation strives to create a world in which women, particularly women of color, succeed as business leaders. Barbara's vision of full-stack philanthropy melds impact investing, advocacy, and grant-making to accelerate an expanded and equitable economy for all. As one of the top U.S. individual investors in women-led innovative tech startups, Barbara's iconic investment strategy has inspired many others around the world. Currently, she serves on a variety of boards, including Founders First Capital Partners, an innovative revenue-based financing firm formed to support diverse small businesses around the country. She's also a founding member of Astia Angels, who invest in impactful, high-growth companies led by inclusive teams with women leaders. In addition, Barbara served as one of the founding members of the Portfolio Incorporated Board of Directors. Portfolio is a venture fund focused on investing in the solutions women want in the world. In 2022, Barbara released her Amazon best-selling book, Build Your Board, Build Your Business. And Barbara speaks five languages and she splits her time between New England and Berlin. Now, in this podcast interview, Barbara talks to us about women's relationship with money, why she decided to start investing in female-founded startups, how she started on her journey as an angel investor, how she invests in early stage businesses, the value add that female investors can provide, her favorite startup investment, lessons learned, and why we need more female investors. And finally, the role that wealth managers have to play. And to finish up, Barbara talks to us about how women can start on their own journey to become angel investors. I hope you enjoy this podcast interview as much as I did. Please note that this podcast interview is for informational purposes only. We do not provide investment advice. Barbara, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you on the Purse Podcast. Thank you for inviting me. I'm sure we'll have a fun conversation. Absolutely. You mentioned just now before the recording that you know Vicky Price, who I've interviewed on the podcast a few times now. It's a small world, isn't it? It really is. Yep. She was my boss when I was in the UK working for KPMG for one year. I was on secondment from the US practice and she was the chief economist at the time and I worked for her practice. Now, before we get into the questions, can you talk to us about yourself and your journey to where you are today? And I'm also very curious to hear about the bookstore that you recently purchased in your local town, I believe. So, of course, as I mentioned, I worked for Vicki Price, so I'm an economist. That's how I think about the world. I think about things in terms of supply and demand. I'm always really interested in how companies succeed and what makes them successful and what is it about the way companies operate that makes them successful or makes them fail, because you can often learn more from failure. And so I've been doing that for a really long time, and I've done it in a bunch of different ways. 
and I decided to become more of a full-time investor about 10 years ago, investing in private equity companies, so privately held companies, mostly in technology, some other spaces as well. And then this bookstore thing, it's a funny thing that, you know, I have a vacation home in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is a little coastal town on Cape Cod. And there was a local bookstore that had been in business for 90 years and they had sold their building and they were going to close up shop. And they had a sad little note in the window that one of my daughters saw when she was walking by. And both of my daughters who are now in their 20s, they just have really always enjoyed the, the bookstore. I mean, I think when you're in a small village and the bookstore can take on a lot of importance in your life. And so I was like, you know, why don't we buy this? We could buy the assets of the bookstore. And, you know, I needed to find a home for it. And that's been the really interesting journey, which has allowed me to do more investing in real estate than I had done before. And so we opened the doors in October. And I think we've just launched online ordering. So if people want to look to see what we have, provincetownbookshop.com. So it's been a very interesting thing. And I think it's for most people, you know, as I said, I like to solve problems. I like to analyze things and see what makes companies successful. And it's also great to just learn new things and do new things. That is really exciting. Do you know, I often think about the fact that when I'm close to retiring, if I ever retire, that I'd like to buy a bookshop and run that as one of my projects. Buying a bookshop is a better alternative than what most people want to do, which is also buy a bar. So, you know, it's better for your health to buy a bookstore than to buy a bar. I'm very curious to know about what has been your biggest influence growing up with regards to money and investing. The biggest influence really was really stepping into the security that money can provide you. I think that women's sort of financial autonomy has been a battle for a long, long time. But I think I learned, you know, I went to grad school and got my first well-paying job. And I just remember thinking like, this is it. This is now whatever I can do, I'm going to really work toward my financial stability. So I maxed out my 401k. I read everything. This is back when you could get a subscription to a magazine because that was your source of information. But yeah, it was really about that. Wanting to feel secure, you know, that I had money and knowing that I could rely on myself for my security. Which is fantastic. And I think just to be so aware and conscious of that from the very start of your career is awesome and has no doubt stood you in, in good stead. Yeah, I think women are sort of not invited into rooms where people talk about money and maybe we didn't grow up with a parent who talked about money in, in positive and constructive ways. And I think it does lead a lot of women to sort of shy away from that. And also women are really busy. And so if you you have a partner who would prefer to do the money work in the house, oftentimes people, you know, women will sort of abdicate that responsibility. And I think it's really important to not do that. Absolutely agree. Now, you did decide to start investing in female-led companies, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Why did you? What was it that made you sit up and pay attention and think, yeah, I'm going to start investing in female-led startups? Well, I think it's just a natural continuation of what I've been doing before, which is, you know, I've been in business for a long time, and I've always been part of groups that support other women. And you look to see like women 
in the United States at least, have been getting more college degrees than men. We tend to have more master's degrees, PhDs, even in some what you might not expect, you know, in certain backgrounds, in certain disciplines. And yet we're still not at the top of business. And a lot of that is related to capital, you know, women business owners not having as much capital as men. And then just women just not being in the rooms where capital is discussed. So I think I really want to be intentional with my money because I'm, if I'm going to invest in early stage companies, I want to reflect my own values, which is women in roles of leadership and also into companies that they're solving problems that I care about. And I just want to underline the word intentional there. If we want to change anything in this world, we have to become intentional. The intention of what we want to do needs to be clear from the outset. It sounds like that's exactly what you did in terms of your startup investing. You've touched upon this a little bit already, but I wonder whether you can add a little bit more color or more of your insight around how would you describe women's relationship with money and specifically building wealth? And, and have you seen that change over the last couple of years? You know, do you expect it to change now going into this decade? You know, I think it sort of has to change. But has it been changing enough? I'm not really sure. So I am seeing a lot more women investing. Women who are angel investors, or I know in Europe they call them business angels, they're now about 30% of all angel investors, or at least the ones who are active. And that's up from like single digits not that long ago. So it's like, that's a big jump. But at the same time, I also heard that there was some market research saying that millennial women who are married to men are giving the financial decisions over to their husbands. And that's disappointing because I think that it should be joint decision-making. And I think a lot of that comes just around to, do women feel like they have agency over their money? Again, research has shown that women, they don't have as much confidence in their financial abilities, yet if you actually test them, they actually perform very highly. They actually do know what they're talking about. But it's just as something that's uncomfortable for them. Because I know I didn't hang out with people, talk, I didn't talk about investments and money and things like that. Now I do, but I still have lots of friends for whom like that hasn't been a part of our relationship. Um, whereas I think a lot of men have been socialized that way. Yeah. So in the UK, I think the figure is about 14 or 15% of angel investors are women. It's obviously a lot higher in the US. So there's a little bit to go in the UK. And yes, I think I called the research from UBS and I think there are a few other wealth managers that have confirmed that unfortunately, women who are in a relationship, a long-term relationship or married, tend to defer long-term investing decisions to their male partner, which has a lot to do with gender norms. And, and this is really what we need to change. But the challenge is that women tend to be very busy, especially if they have families, young families, for example. We need to kind of find a way for women to step into this space. Yeah, and especially in terms of financial advisors, as an industry, that has the lowest satisfaction rate for women. There is no other industry that women feel worse about than their financial advisors. And so you can just imagine that if you're a busy woman, you've got a job, maybe you have children or things like that, you really don't want to talk to that financial advisor because for a variety of reasons, they have not been serving you well. So yeah, it just becomes a vicious cycle. Mm. 
And it's a huge opportunity for wealth managers, isn't it? Yes. Financial planners. <laughs> I've actually seen a lot of change in that in the past couple of years because they all realize that they've all read the same data that we've read. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Barbara, I was wondering whether you could take us through or talk us through how you started as an angel investor and what was that like? Did you have connections, for example, into the startup ecosystem? How did you connect into it? And what were some of the first checks that you wrote, for example? So, you know, because of my work in management consulting, I'd seen you know, really big companies, but I'd also seen a bunch of venture-backed companies in the first dot-com bust back in the olden time. So I was sort of vaguely aware of like how companies start up, very vaguely. And then I think I just started really thinking hard about like, I was really interested in technology and startup. I had done some startups in the social impact space. And that's really before what is we know now as social impact. This was really pure nonprofit. And so I just was doing some research and to put in a search engine like Angel Investors Boston, because that's where I live. There wasn't much there and it wasn't very interesting looking as far as, you know, I was interested in learning about it and they didn't seem like really good learning environments. So I stumbled upon Pipeline Angels, which is responsible for really a tremendous number of new women angels, particularly those who are LGBTQ or black, brown, whatever. And so I ended up enrolling in what at the time it was called the Pipeline Fellowship. And I met, there were about a dozen of us in New York City. And, you know, we all wanted to learn together. We were a diverse group of folks learning about investing in early stage companies. And I made some of my first investments through that. And so my first investments were women-led. One was in a fair trade cocoa company, which is one of my few companies to have gone out of business. It was a it was a slog. It, they were around for a long time. And the other company is Care Academy, which is a pretty well-known online platform for training caregivers. And then the other one was QThink, which was a platform for children to learn about problem solving. So those were like, I made a quick cluster of investments. And I really didn't know what I was doing in the sense of like, I didn't have like a broader strategy. I didn't know how much money I wanted to invest. And I think that's fine because I think that if you think too far ahead, it could be very daunting. I just remember thinking, I'm going to try a couple of these investments and then see what I like about investing. And so you found a community, you found an angel network, and you were able to join other men and women on the journey. How did you decide how much you were going to invest per startup? Well, I think for this kind of investment, which is very risky. You can only invest amounts of money that you could lose. You know, so you have to have a certain amount of wealth that is, you know, whether it's income. And of course, the United States, like other places, we have requirements. You have to demonstrate a level of income to even do these kinds of investments because the Securities and Exchange Commission wants to protect investors. And so I... There's a rule of thumb that maybe you don't invest more than 5% of your assets. But I think that's a pretty conservative number because as people live longer, you have more ability to recover from losses. So I think people could push the envelope on the percentage. 
So that's how I decided. I started with like, just thinking like 5%. So 5% of your overall net worth? Yep. Okay. In terms of the check size, I mean, I'm curious about when you're starting out as an angel investor, there's a lot to learn and experience. Do you think about investing maybe initially just $1,000 or £1,000 or is it more like 5000 or was there a set minimum as part of Pipeline Angels that you had to invest and then they would kind of distribute that across? So, and this is, I think, one of the most interesting developments that's happened in the past several years. Pipeline Angels was unusual in that you had to put a minimum down of $5,000. Most angel groups at the time, the minimum check you had to write was $25,000. That was very common. And that's a lot of money to put down on one company in a field that you don't know much about. What has really changed dramatically in the past few years is the growth of funds where people can't write smaller checks. Like you can put 10000 into a fund and then you're going to get an investment in 10 different companies, as opposed to, I remember thinking it was one of my aha moments very early on that I needed to have a diverse portfolio. So I needed to have investments in about 10 companies. And then the companies I invested in, maybe I needed to do follow-on investment. And a lot of that, when I did the math in my head, it kind of made my head hurt because I was thinking, that's a lot of capital that I'm committing to that I'm not really sure I know what I'm doing especially companies like a portfolio is a great way to get in because for modest check size or a large check size, you can get access to a portfolio of 10 companies. Which as you say, is a brilliant way of de-risking and also just exposes you to so many startups so you can learn about not just different industries, but just the different ways that companies can be built and, and developed. Yeah. In particular, because I think the old way of doing angel investing was it was sort of a rich, retired person's game because they had time to go to lunch, see a company pitch or hear about them on the golf course, and then maybe do a little bit of due diligence, talk about the company, those kinds of things. Nowadays, especially with a micro fund or any kind of fund, you can be a very busy professional and you're in the game. You can learn by doing. I know a lot of these funds are transparent and they'll like send out great newsletters describing why they invest in companies or you can watch a Zoom rebroadcast or something like that. It's so much more flexible, especially for people in this busy time. Absolutely. I read in the Boston Globe that, Barbara, you've invested several million dollars into about 60 companies. Is that right? Yes. And I've invested in about 15 or so funds. I'm leaning a little bit lately more towards funds. It saves a lot of time. So that's a lot of committed capital. It's a lot of startups. I wonder whether you can share the process of investing or what framework or criteria you use, if there's an approach that you have in your mind that you're happy to share, it would be great to hear what works, what doesn't work in your view. And for example, do you decide to sit on the board of a startup as part of your investment? Everything comes down to, even though I'm an individual investor and I write an individual check, I always make my investments with other folks. So I'm usually part of either it's an investment committee on a fund or I'm part of my angel group or something like that because 
when you have a group of people, everybody has very diverse backgrounds and expertise. And so we can really think about a company sort of in a broad manner. And then it comes down to, for the, on the company side, their team is really important. The fact that they have to have a diverse team. We know from data that founding teams are more successful in solopreneurs, although I will invest, I have invested many times in solo entrepreneurs, but usually it's because it's so early that they haven't really added to their founding team. So I think that it's, the question is, are they solving a problem that's like really important? Is it a vitamin? Is it a vaccine? Is it a painkiller or something like that? Whatever it is, we want something that's like solving a really big problem. And then as far as whether it's serving, like I'm actually very rarely chasing a unicorn for the simple reason that as an angel investor, I kind of like to have companies that have the lower capital requirement because if big venture comes in, the first thing they do is do terrible things to the early angel investors as far as the terms for the deal and so forth. So a lot of the companies I invest in are going to be modest as far as how large they grow, but I'm going to make money off them. So works for me. I recall listening to a conversation with, I think it was the co-founder of HubSpot and he decided to become an angel investor. And he talked about the fact that his approach was really just the founder sending him their deck. And he spent no more than 10 minutes reviewing it and the financials. And then he decided whether he wanted to invest or not. He wouldn't even speak to the founder, but he'd put in a, a certain check size and he'd invest in quite a few startups. So from his point of view, he was diversifying. He made a decision that it was going to be impossible for him to know which startup was going to be successful. At the end of the day, it was a little bit of a guessing game, but he took that view, which is a little bit extreme, right? <laughs> it's a pray and pray philosophy. So it can be something. One of the problems with early stage investors is the due diligence process, because Sometimes they can due diligence their way into a decision when my whole purpose for due diligence is to determine if there's a reason for me not to do this deal. And I try to focus really on like, what are the key things I want to know? Like, maybe I want to look at the intellectual property, or maybe I want to think about the market or something like that. But I'm not going to go down the path that a lot of investors go down, which is just trying to satisfy their curiosity. So I think although having a very minimalist approach, it can be okay. But first of all, I'm sure that they're getting deal flow from someone. So the companies are already sort of vetted. It was interesting. There was one of the very well-known VCs here in the US. They publish a report when they sort of do a dive into their own success. They revealed that the majority of the most successful companies in their portfolio came from either cold emails or demo days or things like that. And they did not come from a warm introduction, which I thought was very brave of a VC to admit that because VCs usually pride themselves on their great connections. Yeah, that's very interesting. What would be a reason for you not to invest? Well, I don't know if I can say this on your podcast, but I say like no liars and no assholes. Like if they don't like what they're doing, that's a big thing. 
Also, there are a lot of companies for whom they may have a very good idea and it will be very profitable, but it's not venture backable. So they can't take one of my dollars and turn it into 10 or 20, but they can be very profitable. And maybe it's a tech enabled service business or something like that. Companies really hate to hear that because we've sort of been talking about how great venture is and everybody wants to get venture money. But, you know, sometimes you're better off holding on to your company and b- making it really profitable and living a very happy life. Mm. Would you ever invest in a company that might only generate a 2x or a 3x return? Oh, sure. Yeah. If, especially if I saw like a pretty clear line of sight. And one of the things is not every company goes on to like the ultimate success that they were expecting. And what I really want to try to help more companies do is when they get to that inflection point where they need to either raise more money or maybe exit, usually they haven't done enough work on the exit and they end up going out of business when they can't raise the money. And that company is still good and what they're making is still useful. I wonder whether you can describe, Barbara, or articulate the value add or difference that women investors can provide in startup investing and specifically to female founders. And can you talk us through why being on the board is important or useful? So for women investors, I think that the value add is just adding to the diversity of investors that they're talking about. Also, women are, you know, we buy everything. Like we're the leading consumer of like 85% of everything. So our voice, we know things as consumers, as users. Women's health is a hugely underinvested market. We know things, even about men's health, because we tend to be the chief medical officer of our own family. So I think anytime you're diversifying the perspective of investors in the room, I think that's a good thing. And then as to being on a board, you know, I wrote a book this year called Build Your Board, Build Your Business, because that I really saw that. I saw that having a board was really going to be the secret sauce to success for a lot of companies. And part of it was that, particularly for women, women of color or men of color, if you haven't been socialized around this whole business building or a particular kind of business building, like a high growth tech company. You really need all the networking and all the support you can get. And a board gives you great discipline. If you do it well, you can also do it badly. I've been on some bad boards, you know, but if you do it well, you really leverage that collective power because a board of directors, as opposed to an advisory board, a board of directors is really acting together as a body. And you're really getting all those perspectives on the table, as opposed to an advisory board, which is more like a one-on-one relationship with a CEO. So I think that that really makes a difference. And yeah, I serve on boards and then sometimes I just do an observer seat, which in most cases feels the same, except for some of the voting. But I think it's really important, particularly to make those connections that the company needs for their next steps. And so I also am not insulted when a board feels like they've outgrown me because, you know, my expertise might lie in an area that's different than what they need. And can you give us an example of what an effective board looks like? What do they do really well as a collective body versus a board that's not very effective? I think a board that is basically working together, like, and has enough information. The CEO needs to 
communicate effectively with the board as frequently as they think it needs to happen, but definitely more than just at the board meeting. I need to get my materials in advance. I need to be able to think about things so that I can make decisions as a board member. I can't stand going to a board meeting where information is presented on the spot. There's really no reason to ever do that. It doesn't matter. I can't think of a reason. If it's a highly confidential situation, well, then the CEO should call me beforehand so that I'm still no. Because management science tells us that when we are presented with information for the first time, we're put in a defensive mode because we want to protect ourselves. It's new. It's something different. That's why if you notice that the questions are usually very negative and protective versus if I have a chance to look at something in advance, I'm going to be a little bit more thoughtful probably. Mm -hmm. And if we're introducing more women on the board, especially in startups, because there really aren't very many women on the boards of startups. How does that change the dynamic of these boards? So there's a couple of things, one of which is startups should have a board established pretty early, like when they're raising their seed round before they've taken on any kind of serious institutional money. Because by the time you get to that, let's call it the A, you know, or whatever we're calling it now, but before they get to that institutional money, as we like to say, the horse is out of the barn. Like they need all the counsel to get them to that point. And if they just start to form a board at that point, then they're very much on the back foot. And most investors will require a board seat. If you're a major investor, you usually require a board seat. And they don't really have a vested interest in having you have a large, diverse board, because even if they may not have all the votes from a shareholder perspective, if there's only three people at the table, one person can speak pretty loudly. But if now you have seven people at the table and maybe only one or two of them reflect investors, I think it's better. Plus, also, investors can often be very bad at remembering that when you're on the board of directors, your duty is to the company and not to your investors. Absolutely. Whenever investors do take a seat on the board, the thinking is, yes, I've got to represent the interests of my employer. Yeah. And they may push for a certain kind of exit or a certain timing of an exit. I've seen that. And I just think that it could be really detrimental for a company. That's really important advice. Now, I'm sure... With so many investments, Barbara, there are a couple that stand out. You may even have the favorite, I don't know. And it might be in terms of the experience that you had in terms of investing, the founder or the startup. I wonder whether you can share one or two. Sure. I think one of the ones that I like to talk about was I made an investment in a company called Alidia. And I made the investment in 2018. And it is a medical device to help stop postpartum hemorrhaging, which is a terrible thing to happen to women in, in childbirth. And I remember when I heard about the company, I remember having this feeling because when my second daughter was born, I, I had a postpartum hemorrhage. And it's not something you people go around talking about. I mean, how would you even know? And I thought, wow, this is a game changer because it's a really traumatic and terrible thing to happen in childbirth. And I said, gosh, if 
I can actually do this. I mean, how many investors actually have the same personal experience? So I was very excited to write that check. And I think at the time it was one of the larger checks I'd, I'd ever written, but I was just like, this has to come into the world. I talked to the lead investor and his thoughts were like, the uncertainty of the investment was, this company's not gonna go out of business, but it may not return a lot for investors because at the time women's health had been very underinvested in and we didn't know who's making these investments, who's buying things. And so I ended up investing and then I did a follow-on investment when they were doing a change in CEOs, which can always be a really tricky time. But I was like, nope, this thing needs to happen. This company needs to come into the world. And then it got acquired by a spin-off subsidiary of Merck. And I made about eight times my money in just three years. So it was doing well and doing good. It couldn't happen to a nicer company, I was thinking, because of just the importance of the work that they were doing. That's so great to hear. And I think you've just highlighted how important it is to have female investors, diverse investors in this space, because we all have different experiences. We see the world through a different lens. And so this is why we need more women and more diverse investors in the space. What do you know to be true as a result of investing in female-led startups versus, say, male-led startups? If you were to reflect back on the type of startups that women build, for example, how they raise money, the return on equity, the focus on, say, profit versus purpose or both, can you share some of your observations? Because again, I'm sure there are patterns that have emerged over the last however many years of you investing in female-led startups. Well, I'd like to make the distinction between, so there's women-led, but I, I guess basically it's gender diverse startups versus homogeneous startups. So like the all-male team. And I think what happens with very homogeneous companies is they tend to hire, they call it culture fit, but it's really about, they prioritize harmony over creative friction. So folks are very similar with their backgrounds and maybe temperaments. And we've seen a lot of that where they have this prototypical model for success about like grinding away all that language, like the hustle, the hustle. and the grinding <laughs> and all that stuff that is just really a lot of smoke and mirrors. And so as opposed to a gender diverse and racially diverse and experientially diverse team, they're constantly navigating differences of opinion and different ways of doing things. And I think it just makes the work better. And so it's not necessarily because it's male, because I mean, I have investments in gender diverse teams where the CEO is a man, but it's because those Teams are diverse in a variety of ways. I sort of joke, you know, because some you can see, like, if you're a team of people and you all went to the same school and you all watch the same kind of TV shows, like, you can really see how homogeneous it gets. You all eat the same thing for lunch. I always joke that, you know, when I was in New York, I was in a very diverse team. And when we had to decide where to go for lunch, it was every day it was a negotiation whose restaurant was going to win out. And when you have that kind of daily activity, then when you have a team meeting to talk about how are we going to approach this particular project, that's not a big deal. You're used to doing the give and take. Whereas for a lot of these very homogeneous companies, it really falls apart when they hit challenges. But the other thing I think 
not necessarily because it's male dominated, but this pursuit of top line growth, which sacrifices or doesn't understand what bottom line, what unit profitability is, or even what's a safe way to grow, which we've seen that in so many companies that they're just chasing top line growth. And I think that that chasing top line growth has been the biggest destruction that Silicon Valley has wrought on us. Now we have all this stuff going on where you're constantly seeing the same story over and over again, that companies that had bad governance and poor oversight and were chasing top line growth, oh, look, they ended up losing, losing all the money. It's almost like they're, there are no checks and balances. It's the only thing that anyone's focusing on is that top line growth. And there's nothing wrong with profitability and going for growth. But if you're just looking at growth at all costs, it, the wheels will come off at some point and there is a price to pay. And, and this is what seems to be forgotten by certain investors and founders who maybe are more homogeneous in their makeup. And I really like your point, Barbara, about how you have a diverse group of people. The decision-making is more difficult. It's probably a little bit more uncomfortable, but it's likely to be more rigorous. People have to listen to other perspectives, learn about other perspectives, understand. The whole process will take longer, but the outcome should be so much better. Mm -hmm. Why are we still seeing female founders access such a small percentage of VC capital relative to, to male founders? I know the data keeps getting so bad and it's definitely not improving. And I, whereas I feel like, you know, where I am, I feel like it's getting better because when I'm there investing, usually I'm happy. A couple of years ago, my biggest risk when I thought about investing in a company was, are they going to be able to fill their round? So financing risk was even a bigger risk than a lot of the regular risks that the company was facing. And now most of the companies I see that I'm investing in, they're able to get financing from other investors. So then I go back to like, well, why is the data so bad? And I think it's, well, it's because you have really big checks being written into really big, dumb companies. And I think that the example like Andreessen Horowitz investing in the most recent startup by WeWork founder, like, first of all, what woman would have been able to colossally fail and then get that? And I shouldn't say he, the WeWork founder, didn't fail. He walked away with billions. So I don't know why anybody's giving him any money. He doesn't need any money. But I think that's it, is that some of the checks are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're going to some of these like large male-led companies. And we just keep seeing the, the same kind of pattern matching cycle. It doesn't really favor or support women. I wonder whether you could share what's been one of the more difficult or challenging experiences as an angel investor, and what did you learn from that? I wish that all companies could have a graceful exit. Not all of them can succeed. And it can be timing. We saw COVID really batter some companies. And if it's not COVID, it's something else. And sometimes what a company has is really valuable. So I've seen that where a company that I really liked, I thought a great CEO, I thought that created a lot of good value, but they just weren't going to be able to raise more money to get out of the challenges that they were facing. And so usually then 
you're looking around for a graceful exit. And sometimes it just doesn't happen because maybe it's a little too late, should have been nurturing some of these relationships all along. And then you just see it just shuts down. And so I've seen that a couple of times where I've seen it as a board member and as an advisor, you know, where you're just trying everything you can to just try to keep the business going in some other different form. And it just doesn't work because of whatever reason. So that's why I think about it a lot now. Like, what are the things that we can do to make sure that there's multiple options for a company? And it takes a lot of work because, especially I think for women, they need to sort of have their game face on and always be talking about how great the company is. And sometimes they feel like if they talk about an exit too soon, any kind of merger or acquisition or anything like that too soon, that it doesn't look good on them. But I think at the end of the day, you really need to be thinking about all the options. How do you deal with the risky side of startup investing? I mean, do you ever wake up in the middle of the night and think, goodness, I've got so much exposure here? No, because that's, I think the key is like, never invest an amount that's going to make you stay up at night. I mean, there have been investments I've made. I had a big loss last year. It made me more mad than, because at the end of the day, don't invest anything you can't lose. But it was just like the stupidity of that loss made me really mad. And so what can you do? And that does formulate when I think about things, what would I do next time? Because I have sort of this list of characteristics of companies. And so the losses always will always figure into that. Can you share what that list is of characteristics? Because sure. I'm a big baseball fan and I love Moneyball. And so I like to think, and, you know, it's not like in public equities where you can have these algorithms and stuff to figure out what to invest in. We don't have a lot of data. So things like, obviously, women on the founding team, they perform better than monoculture teams. Founding teams outperform solopreneurs. Serial entrepreneurs tend to be more successful, but their companies will be more expensive because it's sort of built into the price. And I'm okay with that sometimes. Geography can have an impact. And so I always think about that as far as the valuations might be lower in different parts of the country. And so will the costs of running the business, but it also might mean that the opportunities might not be there. And then I also am not investing in companies where the founder is 25 or under. I'm actually pushing it more closer to 30 because I just feel as though you need to have more life experience to run a company than you possibly have at 24 or 25. You can have a great idea, but no, you can't run a company. How do you assess a founder or a founding team? Because you hear this a lot, very early stage investing. You want to essentially invest in the people, the team. Obviously, you like what they're trying to do, what they're trying to build. But ultimately, it's about the people who are building this company. How do you make that assessment? One of the best signals for an entrepreneur, so there's a couple of signals. One of, I say everything's a signal. So like how they treat me as an investor, I always think like, oh, are they closing me as an investor? Like they would close a sale because 
if they're not good with the follow-up with me as an investor, I would think they're probably not doing a good job on the sales side either because it's the same skill set. The big signal for me is when they have their company, who's working with them already? Because people who are great leaders usually come with a whole group of people that they've worked with before. And that we know from research that Aileen Lee did that people who came en masse from a company and formed a company together tend to be pretty successful. Maybe it's not the people who are working for them, but maybe it's board advisors or something like that. But like the people around them, have they been around that person a long time? That's a big signal. Because I think it's the issue of when you know somebody's work ethic and you've seen how they deliver, that's really important as opposed to people, we all know, like you hire somebody and they're not a good fit because working at a startup is really hard. Yeah, it is really hard. It's not for everyone, that's for sure. We're obviously talking about female investors and I have to ask you this question, Barbara, why do we need more female investors? Well, I think just for the simple reason, anytime you diversify a pool of investors, you're going to get better decisions. Also, women, we live a lot longer than men. And there are lots of reasons why maybe we're not getting paid as much as men and so forth. And so therefore, we need to make our money work harder for us. And that we're doing the opposite. I think women tend to hold more cash. I think there's a lot of studies out there about that. We need to have our money work for us because we work really hard. And we need our money to be working for us so that we don't have to work so hard down the road. Now, there's a study by McKinsey and Co, and you might have seen it, Barbara, which, which indicates that women are in line to control as much as $30 trillion, which is about the size of the annual gross domestic product of the United States. How do we encourage more women with access to capital to invest in startups and female-led innovation, you know, many of whom may not know anyone in the startup ecosystem if they're working with a financial planner or a wealth manager, they may not be having this conversation about startups and, and how to invest. So how do we change that? How do we change the narrative and how do we make it much more palatable, I guess, for women who have the money to do this to step into the ring? Right. I think you just need to give all the possible on-ramps for them. And as I was saying, like when I first started most angel investing was you go on a certain Thursday for lunch and you see one or two companies pitch. Now it's totally different. Hop on a Zoom, watch some recordings, whatever. And also people are socializing about it more. They're saying that they invested. And I think that was the other thing too, is many years ago, I said, you know what? I think I need to do more about telling people, this is who I'm investing in. This is what I'm doing. But you know, there are also loads of ways. I think it's not just on ramp to investing. There are a lot of women who've done a lot of investing in real estate. And, you know, they think about that. And I think that there's a lot of analogies for some kinds of real estate to investing in early stage companies. But at least something about like, when you're making any kind of investment, you're taking some risk. People should really analyze what are they investing in? Because there are plenty of funds out there that have a focus on women as leaders or climate change, like all of these things. I mean, for me, I feel like there's a sense of urgency of things we need to invest in. 
and I don't have time to invest in dumb things. So I want to make sure I'm investing in climate change, health, things like that. And I think that it's just taking one or two steps. What's the easiest thing to do? And that's why some of these funds where you can write one check and just do it. Do wealth managers or financial planners have a role to play here? You know, I have seen them changing because obviously if I write a check to a venture fund, that's not something that is under their assets under management, which is usually oftentimes how many of them are compensated. But I have seen them change because the, the reality is they know that, you know, women and people, they just want to invest in, in a variety of things. I would say my wealth manager is incredible. She's been so supportive and so strategic. But I knew that before I signed on with her because she's a leader in investing, teaching women and empowering women to invest for themselves. I've also seen a lot of men. So like, in, for example, in my family, I only have daughters. And I think a lot of men are coming to the realization that they want their daughters to be empowered. They want their daughters to have control over their money. They aren't thinking about if their daughter is ever going to marry a man or anything like that. They're not thinking of her as somebody's future wife. They're thinking about, this is my daughter. I've worked really hard. These are the things I can give her. And you are seeing that. We've seen a lot of father-daughter pairs investing together, which is fun and interesting. Very good for building a good relationship there. I like that. It's, it's about setting up their daughters just to live their best life, being in control of their money as opposed to being dependent on somebody else. Yeah. Barbara, thank you. You've, you've shared so much. There's so much wisdom here. And I feel like we could be talking for hours about these startups, about these exciting businesses and how to invest in them. But my final question to you is, what's the most important lesson that you might have as an angel investor that you'd like to share with other women, especially women who might be stepping into this for the first time? It can be really empowering to see a company that you believe in solving a problem that's important to you take those next steps and grow and grow. I've seen it countless times. It's, it's incredible. And you can be part of that. And you don't have to be the biggest check. You can be the smallest check, but you're still a part of it. And I think that that's really rewarding. That's wonderful. Thank you, Barbara. Thanks. Thank you for joining me today. If you would like to connect with me, you can find me online at Join the Purse or you can subscribe to our newsletter, jointhepurse.substack.com. Until next time, goodbye.